Good evening to you all. It's good to be here. Thank you for the snow. I just, I just imagine that's what it does in Denver. It snows. All right. Well, um, thanks again for the invitation to be here. Thanks to the elders and to Brian at Trinity for having me uh, this weekend. And thanks for this uh, uh, topic as well. Uh, I think I mentioned to Brian earlier that um, the... So I, I wrote a book a number of years ago called Bloodbot World, and then um, I also got involved in this uh, podcast called Cross Politic, which is spun out into a number of other po- uh, podcasts that uh, under the umbrella of uh, what we call the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. And um, but no one's ever actually, at least openly, said, "Could you talk about how those things are related?" And uh, but they are, they are related. Um, and so, uh, thank you for noticing, Brian. Um, but I'm going to start by just giving you a little bit of an overview of, of what cross-politic is, just in case if some of you don't know or uh, about it, and, and how it started, and then um, kind of move our way into um, some of the, the um, um, I think some of the things that make it kind of unique, and also um, how it intersects with the themes from the book uh, Bloodbot World, and then uh, and then hopefully land it with um, some practical ways in which I think um, Christians need to engage in the public square. Um, and um, so that's, that's the, basically the, the structure of, of the talk uh, this evening. So CrossPolitik is the brainchild of Gabriel Wrench. Um, he came uh, to me in the spring of 2016 and asked me if I would be interested in doing a podcast with him something to do with a Christian worldview applied to politics, and not knowing what a podcast was, I said yes. Fairly quickly, I realized that there was technology involved with podcasts, and while Gabe had a lot of passion and I knew Greek and Hebrew, we needed a lot of help. Uh, Filmmaker, recording ninja David Shannon, also known as the Chocolate Knox, had just moved into town a year or so before, He had a small studio that he worked out of, and Gabe and I both thought of him immediately that he might be a great addition to our show, and plus, he knew how technology worked. Uh, He turned us down on our first invite, but a few months later, Gabe invited him to meet us in my office, and while I had no idea at the time, Knox tells us now that apparently in the black church, when you get called to the pastor's office, you have to do whatever he says. I, so he said he knew he couldn't say no. Um, we, uh, we dropped our first shows in the fall of 2016, hoping that someone other than our moms might tune in. Uh, the simple goal was to talk about current events, news, and politics, and bring God's word and the lordship of Jesus Christ to bear like a jackhammer. Uh, Gabe noticed there were piles of Christian podcasts to talk about the Bible, and evangelism or apologetics or theology or worldview sort of broadly. Uh, and then there were, on the one hand, so you know, piles of Christian podcasts of sorts. And then on the other hand, you have piles of conservative talk radio or political um, shows um, that were sometimes sort of vaguely Christian, Judeo-Christian, um, but we weren't really aware of um, virtually any shows that were all about politics but were unabashedly biblical. We wanted to answer the question, what does the Bible say about economic policy? What does the Bible say about foreign policy? What does the Bible say about welfare, taxation, criminal penalties, the prison system, war, trade, and so on? We didn't start cross-politic because we thought we had all the answers to those questions, but we started cross-politic with the simple conviction that the Bible does, that Jesus is Lord, and so Jesus is Lord over politics. Jesus is Lord over economics. Jesus is Lord over Washington, D.C. He is Lord over Wall Street. He is Lord over all of the states and cities and counties. He's Lord of all the governments. And therefore, um, all of the things that the governments do need to submit to Jesus. And the Bible is is the, is the instruction manual. It's the word of God for all these things. The Bible says that all scripture 
is inspired by God and is useful for teaching and correcting and rebuking and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3. Some of that good work is public policy. Some of that good work is legislation. Some of that good work is jurisprudence. Some of that good work is criminal justice. Al Muller's The Briefing was the only podcast we were aware of at the time, and I'm frankly still aware of, that actually approaches some of this goal. Uh, he's doing a news, a does, does a daily news uh, a podcast in which he is seeking to bring Christian principles uh, to bear, uh, but we were going for something a little more rowdy, a little less bow tie, a little more, I don't know what. We wanted to engage blue collar middle America. We set out to try to get an auto mechanic in Wyoming to think about how his family could think and act in their community to make a difference in the public square for Jesus. That's, that's, that's who our audience was. We wanted just, you know, somebody maybe who, you know, maybe they finished high school and they're working hard at their job and they look around them and they say, what the heck is going on in this country and is there anything I can do about it? An early descriptor that we use to try to explain ourselves because people often ask, what in the world are you doing? Um, We talked about news, but it was also, again, sort of, again, sort of rowdy. We sometimes talked over one another. We still do that sometimes. We try, we've tried to stop doing that some, but we all often interrupt our guests. We often contradict our guests. Um, Sometimes we just tell them that they're wrong. Um, And, and um, when people said, what are you, what are you doing? Like, you're not being very, I don't know, dignified. Um, we said we were going for ESPN meets Johnny Cash in a crowded bar, which some people understood. A very few, <laughs> everyone else was saying, what, what? ESPN meets Johnny Cash in a crowded bar. Almost six years later, we're still barely out of diapers, but God has blessed the work immensely, and what began as a hobby and a mission has grown into a business that is supporting us and employing several folks and growing rapidly each year. Um, The podcast is called Cross Politic, and our logo is an American flag bowing down to the cross. That's the symbol of what we're going for. Uh, We believe that Jesus is Lord of this country, he's the Lord of every country, and the governments must submit to Jesus. The governments must submit to Jesus because he's King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Our network is called the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network with a dozen or more shows now. I honestly don't know, can't keep up with it, but um, we have an app called the Fight, Laugh, Feast app that you can download and you can see all the shows on there, including ours. Um, We have a daily news brief, and I think last time I heard we have four or five million downloads a year, Um, hundreds of thousands of views on Facebook, YouTube, a few cable TV channels, etc., one of the lines we use regularly to describe what we're up to at CrossPolitik is rowdy Christian media. We started a small merch business called Rowdy Christian Merch. Our tagline, Fight, Laugh, Feast, is meant to convey something of what we mean by rowdy Christians. But I want to use that as a sort of a way of unpacking um, what we're trying to do. And I think this is what will drive us into the Bloodbot World themes. The point of the, the descriptor, rowdy Christian, is not that we think Christians should be rude, uncouth, obscene, or anything of the sort. The point is that we think Christians should be biblical. We think Christians should be biblical. And of course, you say that, I say that, and every Christian nods and smiles nicely and glazes over. Right? Of course, you're supposed to, you think you want to be biblical, Bible, 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 Bible. But the problem is that despite all the nice Christians in this world saying Bible, 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 I don't think anyone seems to have read the thing in a couple of centuries. At most, they've got these little, you know, bedside, you know, things where you tear off a thought of the day and they've picked about 50 of the most, you know, happy, sunshine, unicorny verses in the Bible, which are inspired and holy and good. And that's, they think, reading the Bible. I read a warm thought from Psalms today or Ecclesiastes or whatever, and it made me feel warm and I read the Bible and now I'm gonna, you know, I turn it over and I'll do it again tomorrow. And that's what they think it means to be biblical. 
I had warm thoughts about Jesus and God and the Bible this morning, and now I'm going to do what I was going to do anyway. Um, or when they do, in fact, actually read the Bible, I, I don't. I, I think the only other option, if they're not doing that, and they say, "No, actually, I have a, a reading plan, and I I read the Bible. I actually start in Genesis, and I get to the end, and I do it again, and and then and I. The only other thing I can think of is okay, that they must be reading it with um, some kind of um, problem seeing." some kind of problem understanding. They've got these like super spiritual goggles on when they read the Bible and it's sort of like, and they glaze over and they think it's just sort of saying holy nice things. Holy nice things, holy nice things, Jesus love, Jesus love, nice, holy, nice, holy, Jesus, holy. And they get to the end and they say, hmm. And somehow they have actually um, glazed over, and, and they didn't actually read all of the words. Uh, the words have not actually engaged them. They've, they're not actually paying attention to what it's actually saying. And, and um, in other words, um, they, they've somehow enabled themselves, they have some kind of block, maybe, and, and maybe this is just a, a, um, the Lord um, in the Bible will describe sometimes giving people a, over to a drunken spiritual stupor. And, and, I, have, and, I, and I, I, I'm, I believe that God has given over uh, the West to that drunken spiritual stupor. They're, 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 they're drunk. They're not actually reading what's there, and so um, they, they don't see all the sharp parts. They don't see all the rowdy parts. Uh, so that when a, a Christian, a biblical Christian, actually begins saying things that are in the Bible and, and actually doing the things that are in the Bible, um, they are considered rude. They're considered uncouth. In other words, we believe that if people actually read the Bible out loud, it would be considered rude, uncouth, obscene, and rowdy. If they actually read it out loud. I mean, the prophet Ezekiel walked around Israel naked for a year. One of God's prophets walked around Israel naked for a year. One of our guys did that. One of God's representatives did that. One of the heroes of the faith did that. Not to mention the fact that God also required him to cook his food over feces. He begged for it not to be human feces, and God said, fine, animal feces will do. That's in the Bible. Not to mention the off-color language he used to describe Israel's lust for the nations, which I told the guys last night was rated R, and I'm not even allowed to read it. Now, part of the problem is our translators... Because some of those passages you can read, and you're sort of like, what's going on there? I don't know. And the translators are actually doing us a disservice. And, and, and so there are a few places like that. But there's enough there that it ought to just, it really ought to, you know, if, if you're actually reading with your eyes open and your mind engaged, there should be a bunch of places in the Bible that offend you. If the Bible never offends you, you're not reading it. If the Bible never concerns you, I don't know if you should be saying that. You're not reading the Bible. It's, it's, this is not, um, you know, family-friendly entertainment. If a pastor got up and read certain passages out loud in plain vernacular English, he would be shouted off the stage by all the deacon's wives breathing into paper bags. Now, the point, I want to be really careful here. I want, I want to be clear. The point is not to try to justify some kind of junior high boy locker room humor. That's not what I'm after at all. The same Bible is also clear that our words must be pure. We're not to have any unclean thing in our mouths. But God's the standard maker for this, not grandma. God bless her, right? Nor is it 21st century sensibilities, nor is it focus on the family, nor is it 
whatever, the Republican right. I mean, whatever. Whatever your standard is for what is pure and lovely, whatever your standard is for clean and unclean, it, it has to be the Bible. The Bible's the standard. God's the standard. And if God can have Ezekiel saying certain things that would make most of us blush, sometimes apparently that's, that's what's called for. It's what's necessary. It's what's needful. It's what's loving. Now, the point isn't, again, the point is not a, a license. The point is not to, um, to have a foul mouth. The point is actually Jesus. The point is Jesus Christ. Now, quite apart from the rest of Scripture, which we must certainly not ignore, not forget, all of Scripture is inspired by God and is useful. All of it. But we know that all Scripture points to Jesus fundamentally. All Scripture is pointing us to Jesus. And the thing that, at the center of all this, the concern is, is that we have got to repent of our failure to see Jesus. Jesus was not a mollycoddled Mormon. He was not a, a Boy Scout. I don't know how to say it. I mean, he, he wasn't, he didn't, you know, he was not the guy. Here, here's one way to explain what I mean. Um, the way Christians frequently read the Gospels, it makes absolutely no sense why they killed him. If you've ever had the unfortunate experience of having to watch some kind of Jesus film, apologize, sorry, if it brings up bad memories. Um, it, this point is underlined. In all the movies and all the TV shows about Jesus, Jesus is some kind of meek and mild, super nice, super gentle, warmed over, semi-hippie flower child. And then for some bizarre reason, everyone wants him dead. I mean, first of all, it's terrible storytelling. And Christians just keep lapping it up. Wow, this is amazing. Really moved me. It makes no sense. Why? Like, if you're going to do a Jesus movie, at least demonstrate why they want him dead. But it's not actually hard to find. The Gospels tell us clearly that Jesus made trouble everywhere he went. And again, we have this problem where we just like glazed over. It's like, well, he's Jesus. He just sort of walks two feet off the ground, taking floats. And, we, and, and it's just a mystery why no one liked him. People hated him. Jesus, of course, did preach good news. He preached forgiveness of sins. He proclaimed the kingdom. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. But he also broke all the rules. He offended all the leaders, all the respectable types. He didn't keep the ceremonial laws very carefully. He didn't follow the Sabbath regulations. And he did these things in ways calculated to offend the religious and political leaders of his day. When Jesus came to dinner, it was a sure bet that he would point out the elephant in the room. He would challenge the status quo. He would poke the most respected guest in the eye. I mean... You didn't want Jesus coming for dinner. And everybody says, oh, no, 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 we would, we would, we would welcome that. We want, we want Jesus to come for dinner. I mean, Jesus, I mean, he was going to come and he was going to say, so how's your porn habit? He would be the one who would walk in and, and, and say, you know, why are you wearing such a low-cut dress? Are you really insecure? You need the men to look at you? That's, that's Jesus. He's the one who came in and just, he would just, he, he just said whatever he was thinking. Whatever needed to be said. Aiming it at our sin, aiming it at our idols, aiming it at the things that kept us enslaved. He, he did it for love. He did it for our good. We, I, I, was, I was talking to Hayes last night about um, some of these themes. Um, you know, Jesus, you know, a lot of times people will say, well, Jesus was the friend of sinners. He ate with sinners and tax collectors. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. In order to set them free. He, he would take them to dinner and say, 
Let's talk about your problems. Jesus did not just hang out with them. Yeah, he, he talked to the woman at the well. And what is it, like three sentences in? He's like, so tell me about your love life. Go call your husband. I don't have a husband. You're right. You've had five husbands and the man you're with now, not your husband. Now, if that's what you mean by friend of sinners and tax collectors, yeah, absolutely. The guy who would bring up the problem. The guy in which his friendliness quickly became awkward. He's going to bring it up. He's going to address the problem and he's going to name it straight up the middle. I mean, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't say, you've had a hard romantic past. <laughs> right? That, you know, that's, that's how the gospel coalition would say you should address it. No, he says, you have a string of men and the guy you're with now, you're fornicating with. We think Pharisees are bad guys now. I think part of the problem is, is you read the Bible and it says Pharisee and you're like, okay, here's the bad guy. You know why you know he's a bad guy? Because Jesus trashed them. That's, that's why you think of them as being bad guys now because the gospels have been permeating our culture for 2,000 years and everybody knows now the Pharisees are bad guys. But at the time, Pharisees were good guys. At the time, Pharisees were conservative seminary professors. Right? They, were, they taught at Denver Seminary. They, they taught at RTS. They, they taught at Southern Seminary. The places you went, because they were the conservatives. They believed in the resurrection of the body. They believed that the Old Testament, the whole thing, was God's word. We think priests and scribes and Sadducees are bad guys now, but again, that's because Jesus collided with them. He trashed their reputations because he collided with them. He ran right up the middle with them. They said, don't do that. And he said, watch me. I've said before, I think that there are, there are problems with um, Tom Sawyer. But Jesus is more like Tom Sawyer than I think we give him credit for. You know, you know if you've read The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, Mark Twain's you know, famous work, you know, I mean, they, like, he's just always in trouble. He's constantly just playing with things, twisting things, playing, you know, ruffling their hair, messing it up. And Jesus does that. One of my favorite stories to illustrate this point is the story of the demoniac in the tombs. It's given in two gospels slightly differently. In one, one of the gospels, there are two demoniacs and one, there's one, and I don't think there's a major problem there, but um, hopefully that bothers you, so I'm just gonna leave it there so that it'll bother you because the word of God is supposed to bother you. But in Mark's version, the one demoniac, remember the man, is, he lives in the tombs and he, he can't be chained. It says he breaks all the, the, the things they bind him with and he's cutting himself in the tombs and he's screaming in the graveyard outside of this region of cities called Decapolis. Just raging, just a, a madman. And he's tormented, we find out, by legion, which is apparently an entire Roman regiment of demons, which is what a legion was, right? And the And the... And the legion asks to be sent into a herd of 2,000 pigs. Please do not send us out of the country. Let us go into the pigs. Why they thought that was a good idea, we don't know. At least I don't. Jesus gives them permission, dismisses them. They enter the pigs. The pigs run violently down a steep cliff and drown in the sea. And when the people of the city come out to see what had happened, they find the man clothed and sitting in his right mind, and, and the people are terrified when they hear about the pigs, and they beg Jesus to leave. And so the question is, was this a successful outreach in Decapolis? If you went on a short mission trip and sent back this report to your average supporter, would you get additional donations and attaboys? 
Probably not. We, dear supporter, we got kicked out of town, sent the local economy into a nosedive, ruined the environment, and we had one glorious convert. (laughs) 2,000 pigs is a lot of pigs. 2,000. How many people lost their jobs that day? I mean, what, I mean, what was the write-up in the Decapolis Daily News? I mean, how, I mean, how, I mean, seriously, how many people got fired? How many people lost their livelihoods? Two thousand pigs. How long did it take for the smell of two thousand dead pigs to dissipate? How many fish died in the Sea of Galilee? Those poor fish. That was not very environmentally friendly or sustainable. And there was one convert sitting clothed in his right mind, sent home telling everyone what Jesus had done for him. Was it a successful mission? Yes, it absolutely was. And it was a ruckus. It was a mess, literally a mess. An environmental mess, an economic mess, a political mess. Decapolis is a Roman name. It means 10 cities. I mean, what are a bunch of unclean pigs doing in Judea anyways? Probably because you have Roman, a Roman colony of some sort in that region. They're probably using the pigs not only to eat as food, but also to offer as sacrifices, which was common in Roman and, and Hellenistic worship. So, you know, think about the political mess he just created. The Jews have eked out this peace with the Romans. They're kind of allowed to function as Jews, but the Romans are over them. And Jesus just completely nuked the local economy. Are they going to be able to offer the the sacrifices to Zeus and Jupiter and everybody? Are they going to have food to eat? You know, the public relations nightmare here. Right? Who did it? Jesus did it. Jesus is a teacher from Jerusalem. The word gets around, oh yeah, I've heard about him. He makes trouble everywhere he goes. Do you know that Jesus? Are you following that Jesus? The book of Acts is another one of my favorite places to point this same pattern out in. By my count, there are around 14 public disturbances in the book of Acts. You read the book of Acts, it's basically, you know, it's oriented around those disturbances. 14 of them. What do I mean by public disturbances? I mean riots, I mean mobs, I mean commotions, I mean angry crowds. In all but one of them, as far as I can tell, 13 of 14, Luke includes a result to the disturbances. So in, as you're reading through, again, my, by my count is 14, maybe you might count slightly differently, but around 14, and 13 of 14 of them, Luke incurred, includes a result to the disturbances, the public disturbance. There's a riot, there's a mob, uh, there's some kind of angry crowds, there's an arrest, there's you know, something that would make the newspaper. And in 13 or 14 of them, Luke includes a result. He says, and you know, so and so, so many were baptized that day. Uh, uh, so many conversions. Many of the leading women of the city came to the Lord. Many of the nobles were converted. The, the believers were encouraged and rejoiced and built up. There's, there's, because Luke has to do that because he knows what we're thinking. If you're reading again with, with open eyes, and you're, reading, and, and you're reading this carefully, it's like event after event, at least 14 of them in which you should think to yourself, oh no, this can't be good for the gospel. Oh no, it, they're ruined now. It's over now. And, then, and Luke just quickly says, no, 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 don't worry. The saints were built up. 
There were so many baptisms, so many conversions. The leading people of the city, they converted too. The leader of the synagogue, he converted. Because Luke knows that's what you're tempted to think. What would look to your average PR guy like disaster after disaster after disaster is God's way of causing the gospel to go forth. It's how it worked with Jesus in the gospels. He had a mission. He was going to obey his father. He was going to set captives free. He was going to walk right into the middle of the the demons, the idols, the fortress of darkness, and he was going to undo it. And that was going to cause a ruckus. It was going to be rowdy. What begins with Jesus is then multiplied and replicated in the lives of the apostles in the book of Acts. It's the same pattern. This is how the gospel goes forth. These are opportunities to preach. This is where the glory of Christ is revealed in God's people, when they're lied about, when they're slandered, when they're hated, when there are riots, when there are mobs, that's when the glory of Christ shines. What would look to your average PR guy like disaster after disaster after disaster is God's way of causing the gospel to go forth. By the time you get to the end of Acts, you, you get the impression that when all the disciples are begging Paul not to go to Jerusalem, please, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. It's going to be terrible. There, there's going to be more riots. There's going to be more crowds. You're probably going to get arrested. You might even get shipped off to, room, off, off to Rome. You get, you get the impression that Paul would have looked intently at those disciples trying to warn him and say something like, you promise? <laughs> like really big crowds? Like I get to talk to like a lot of jailers and maybe even ship to Rome? I'm going. See, Paul saw all that as opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. A crowd gathers. I want to. I mean, that's what happens. He goes down to Jerusalem. He starts. He does, you know, an offering. He had a Nazarite vow, and and he gets accused of bringing Gentiles into the temple, and a riot breaks out. There's this massive crowd shouting and the Roman soldiers come in and haul him out to save his life. And he's like, wait, 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 wait. Can I preach to them for just a minute? And the guy's like, okay. <laughs> All right. And he just does a sermon. It's a crowd, it's people. They're all, they're all worked up. They need to know about Jesus. They need to know about the resurrection. They need to know that their sins can be forgiven that God's come to reconcile the world to himself. Crowds and commotion and free trips to Rome seem like gospel opportunities to Paul. But there's hardly a pastor or a politician alive today with that kind of faith or courage. And that's our problem. We're afraid. We're afraid of the crowd. We're afraid of the newspaper write-up. We're afraid of the slander. We're afraid of the lies. When those are the precise moments that God gives for the gospel to go forth. I learned this really vividly a number of years ago when I was up there were several years in a row. We have a university in Moscow in which... Uh, it's a state university, University of Idaho, and um, six or 8,000 uh, students up there. And I, um, for a few years, was going up fairly regularly, and I would open air preach. And, um, and some years were um, relatively quiet um, and, you know, s- s- sort of a trickle of interesting conversations and, and so on. But there's, a, there's one year in particular that will always stand out to me for the rest of my life um, because of what the Lord did. And I think part of it had to do with weather. Uh, in in, in uh, Moscow, Idaho, um, northern Idaho, the weather just is really fall. You never know quite exactly what you're going to get. And occasionally you get a real long Indian summer and it's warm throughout the fall, which is just great preaching weather because everybody be outside. Otherwise, it's just you and the smokers, you know, when it's freezing cold out. But the smokers need Jesus too, so I, I preach to them too. Um, but... Uh, 
But this one year was really warm, and it was great weather, and I was going out there, and I, I think I got out there you know, end of August, and, um, and I, I, I open up, and, I, and usually what I do, is I would usually preach for like 10 or 15 minutes and then just try to have conversations with people. And so I usually went at my lunch hour, so about 12, 15, there was a major lunch break in between classes, and so there's a center rotunda where all, a lot of the classes kind of change, and you, at least for about 15, 20 minutes, there's about, you know, there's a thousand students or so that'll cross. And I, I get out there and I had barely gotten through my introduction. I always say my, what my name is and where I'm from. I'm Toby Sumter. I'm from this church and I'm here to talk to you today about Jesus. And this um, fellow comes just barreling up to me, just cussing me out. You know, what are you doing here? Get off my campus. We don't want to hear from you. And he's just, he's red in the face. He's belligerent. He's mad. And I'm like, whoa, who, whoa, hey, what's your name? I'm not telling you my name. Get out of here. We don't want to have anything. What, what are you studying? I'm not talking to you. I get out of here. And shoo, crowd. You know, they want to see the blood, right? And I was like, I'm like well, what are you talking about? Well, you just hate us. No, I'm not here because I hate you. I'm here because I love you. I'm here because of the gospel. I'm here because Jesus rose from the dead and, and, is, and, and is saving the world. And, uh, get out. This is nonsense. It's myths. And you're just here to judge us. You're just here to yell at us and get angry. At, no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. And he, you know, he yelled for a little bit. And then a few other people started asking questions. And then he kind of marches off in a huff. And I went on for a little while. And then the crowd kind of dissipated. And I was like, well, golly. <laughs> And I go back the next week, and I wasn't, again, five minutes into it, and the same guy just comes barreling up to me. Ah, what are you doing? I told you to get out of here. You know, cussing and swearing and everything, and, and crowd. And then I'm, you know, back and forth for a bit. He gets tired. I'm out of here, and leaves. And, um, and then, and, and basically, almost every week, he would show up in the middle of something of my preaching. And, and sometimes he would, you know, kind of, he would ease up a little bit and, you know, he'd kind of have a little bit of an argument with me and, and you know, found out he's a philosophy major, of course. Um, let that be a lesson to you all. Um, and, um, but, you know, some kind of vague Roman Catholic background and then did some Eastern spiritualism and now is an angry atheist. And so little bits and pieces are coming out and, you know, he'd yell and, and, and you know, we'd argue a bit and crowd would come and then... Um, and occasionally, um, Pastor Doug Wilson would also come out with me too, and, and, and when he could. And so, uh, on a, a couple occasions, he would come out, and, um, and and often what we would do is we'd take turns. But sometimes I would also, one of us would start, and then we would also explain that, um, you know, the other. This is my friend, Pastor Doug, and he's going to ask some questions that maybe some of you are thinking. And if you, you know, want to explore some of those things that he's asking, feel free to jump into the conversation. And so we sort of have a conversation going out there out loud for the students to watch and listen and then join in. And, and oftentimes that would be really helpful. And, you know, this guy would show up occasionally and he'd argue with us and then move on. Um, and I think at the, towards the end of the, of the fall, um, the, uh, um, we had... I, in my recollection, the, the very, very largest um, crowd we ever had. I mean, the crowd would you know, pour through, but probably only, you know, on average, maybe 50, 60 people would hang out and listen and, and interact. Um, and, but we got going, and, and, um, and that guy showed up. And then another kid showed up that was just, you know, had a mouth that was filthy and was particularly going after Doug. He was just, and it was like, you know, the most disrespectful, dishonoring, foul, obscene thing. And he was just, you know, tearing into Doug. And Doug was just gracious, answering questions. And then, but we had, you know, two guys then kind of yelling at us in various ways. And I think at one point there were probably about 300 students there. And we're just, they're just throwing questions at us. What does the Bible say about this? What does the Bible say about homosexuality? What does the Bible say about pornography? What does the Bible say about abortion? What does the Bible say about racism? And what, and we're just answering the questions, taking turns, answering the questions and pointing them to Jesus. And it is hundreds of students. And, um, and after the, the crowd dissipated, that, that one guy who had been berating me all semester long, he came up to me and he, he said, I'm really sorry about that other guy. <laughs> and he put out his hand and said, my name is Justin. And I said, can I take you out for lunch sometime? And he said, yeah, that'd be great. And, uh, and we did. We went out a couple of times. And... Um, and then he faded away. I haven't seen him in a while. But I always remember Justin. And I pray for him. But I also thank God for Justin. 
Because God sent an angry philosophy major to argue with me for a whole semester so that hundreds of University of Idaho students could hear the gospel. Right? And, and how many of us are ready for that? You think what we need is a good angry person. What we need is a good commotion. What we need is a good ruckus. So that there will be a big crowd who can hear about Jesus. And then, you know, all the way to the end, and the other angry kid, and the other obscene kid, yelling at Doug, and, and he's just answering graciously, graciously, graciously. Right? That's, that's the thing. That's the thing. It's, it's not the argument for the argument's sake. It's when the argument comes, what does it collide with? It collides with grace. But it's not grace that just flops. It's grace that stands there. It's grace that has a backbone. It's grace that says, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not apologizing for anything. Christ died and rose again, and you need to repent. It's grace that stands there. That's what it's coming smack into. Grace collides with unbelief. Grace collides with Satan. Grace collides with the world. And when it collides, it's a mess. It's rowdy. And then what you what do you do? You stand there and you love. That's what you do. What's your name? Can I take you to lunch? How can I pray for you? That's what Jesus did. It's not this bland, lukewarm, oatmeal grace. It really isn't grace at all. It just leaves people in their sins. It allows them to keep wallowing around in their unbelief. No, grace collides with it. Right? Grace says, you've got to stop. It's killing you. It's destroying our world. It's destroying our city. It's destroying our community. You've got to stop. There is a God in heaven. He made the heavens and the earth in six days. He sent his only son so that the darkness would end. You've got to stop. We have to learn to see the collision of grace with unbelief as a glorious thing. When it collides, when it explodes, when the sparks fly. Now, you, you still got to guard your flesh. You still got to guard it. I mean, because, you know, you got people cussing you out and calling you names and, you know, uh, 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 saying things about your mom or whatever. And you've got to be ready to re- return blessing for the cursing. Smile. Rejoice. But, you know, people sometimes like to count, you know, camp out on those passages about, and they're, they're glorious passages. Jesus says, love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. Bless those who curse you, right? Those are in the Bible. They're glorious. They're good. Amen. The problem is, is that most Christians don't have any enemies. Well, you don't do that. That might offend somebody. <laughs> they, might, they, might, they might not like you. You mean they might become your enemies so you might have to love them? They might hate your guts and so you then have to be in a position to bless them? How many enemies, how many personal enemies do you have? And if you don't have any, then you are not obeying Jesus' command. What are their names? Why do they hate your guts? How are you loving them? But in order to have an enemy, grace has to collide. It has to collide. Well, that takes courage. That's scary. I, I still don't really like open-air preaching at all. I don't. <laughs> it was one of the best things for my prayer life. Most... Fridays when I went up there, I was praying things like, Lord, if this is a bad idea, please stop me now. Please stop me now. Please stop me now. I also regularly prayed that the Lord would somehow allow the students to know that I was there because I cared about them. I remember I, the very first, one of the first times I went up there, I had been praying that all week long. I was terrified because I'd never open air preached before in my life, and I thought it was only crazy people who did that. 
And I went up and I just prayed, Lord, please let them know that I love them. Please, Lord, if nothing else. And I preached for about 10 minutes. It was probably the, I don't know, lamest open air message I ever gave. And then a girl came up to me afterwards and she said, you know what? I didn't agree with anything you just said, but thanks for being here because I can tell you care about us. I was like, okay, Lord. (laughs) I really believe that it is going to take a generation of Christians who are willing for that. Who are willing to stand for Christ in obedience, in humility, and do the thing that's utterly awkward, that's utterly unpopular, and be hated. And do it joyfully. Do it gladly. That's what it's going to take. And it's going to take that in the public square. I want to close with just three practical suggestions. This is not an exhaustive list at all, but I, I, I wanted to try to bring it, land this politically. And um, in, in terms of, you know, sort of these are the principles. We need to be willing to take the gospel everywhere, and we need to take it like Jesus did, uh, joyfully, cheerfully, but uh, it needs to collide with all unbelief. It needs to collide with the darkness. And when it collides, it's going to cause a ruckus. It's going to be considered uncouth. It's going to be considered rude. It's going to be considered rowdy. And when it does, there will be crowds. There will be opportunities uh, for the gospel to shine. And, and we need to have that heart, that commitment, and that applies to every sphere, to your business, to your work, to your family, to the church, and to the public square. Here are three practical suggestions, encouragements uh, for uh, particularly thinking about how to engage in the, in the public square. Um, the first one is just that Christians must reject all claims uh, to neutrality. There is no neutrality. You're either for Christ or against Christ. You're either for God or against God. You either believe in Christ or not. If the Bible is the word of God, then it is the word of God all the time and everywhere. It's the word of God in the legislative chambers. It's the word of God in the Supreme Court. It has not ceased to be the word of God. It's the chief word. It's the word of the supreme judge of the universe. All governments, all magistrates answer to him and to his word. And Christians need to stop apologizing for that. They need to stop pretending that somehow, you know, God's word applies at church and in Bible studies and in my home, but if I I can't bring it up in the public square. No, it is the word of the Lord. And we need to read it to them. We need to bring it to them and say, this is what the God of the universe says. And they say, I don't believe in your Bible. And we say, we don't care. It's still the word of God. Uh, Pastor Wilson likes to use this example, and it's a glorious um, little picture. But, you know, if a a guy comes, you know, if a mugger comes and holds you up with a gun and, and says, give me all your money, and the guy says, oh, no, I don't believe in guns. The the mugger doesn't say, oh, well, all right then. Sorry about that. (laughs) But that's what so many Christians do. Bring the word of God and you say, it says, thou shalt not murder. And you are murdering babies made in the image of God. And they say, we don't believe in your word. And we say, we don't care. It's the word of God. And you're in defiance of the living God. You are bringing his wrath down upon your head. You say, well, then but what happens? They say, okay, thanks, next. You keep doing it. Have you not read the prophets? Right? What, what terrible lives the prophets had. Right? The, Lord came, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah again. Go tell them again. And Jeremiah went again. You know, do you think once Jeremiah was like, can I have the day off? I already told him 10 times. Our job is to tell them. Our job is to tell them. So take it to them. No, no faithful Muslim pretends neutrality. 
Do the Muslims apologize for the Quran? Most of the time, no. We should not apologize for the Bible. Don't pretend neutrality anywhere. This is why for a long time, Protestant America was actually terrified of the thought of a Roman Catholic politician. Now many times we think, oh good, they're Roman Catholic. <laughs> Maybe there's a semblance of morality left. You know, it was, it, was, it was thought odd in our country to elect a Roman Catholic to a political position since technically the Pope is the final earthly authority in Catholic theology, which would put a Catholic politician under the ultimate authority of some guy in Italy. Which is odd. Right. That's, that's, I mean, that's why it was, like, it was a pretty big deal when JFK got elected. Are we going to be surreptitiously ruled by the Pope? But in these modern enlightened times, politicians are essentially required to pretend that there's no higher authority than the Constitution. But since leftists don't mind lying, they just lie their heads off and go right ahead demanding abortion and LGBT domination that are nowhere to be found in the Constitution, while Christians, feeling bad and trying to be honest, promise not to use the Bible in their decision-making which is wicked, which is blasphemy. We should be requiring our Christian politicians to promise to use the Bible. The Bible is over the Constitution, right, Amy Coney Barrett? Of course, she's a Roman Catholic, right? So she would say the Pope. But that's what they do. They pro- Oh, no, no, I promise. I'm completely neutral. That's our problem. That's our problem. You can't be neutral. What they are promising to do is not obey Jesus sometimes. And so we keep getting our lunches handed to us. All right, number two, knock down the idols. So number one is no neutrality everywhere, anywhere. No neutrality. The Bible is the word of God. Jesus is king. Jesus is Lord. And what we're promising to do in the public square is obey Jesus. And it turns out that obeying Jesus really is good for the world. It's the best thing for the world. But the second thing we need to do is knock down the idols. The thing the Christians don't understand is that idols enslave, but they enslave through fear. What we need are piles of Christians who will walk up to the idols and push them over with a grin. Right? We've had a great example, you know, opportunities to do this in the, in the, in the COVID, in the COVID times. Right? We have... Uh, you know, people are terrified. And what do you have to do? You just sort of like, watch this. And I'm not dead. Look at that. How about that, huh? Yeah, you can do it too. There's lots of opportunities. Draw doodles all over their idols. You know, spray paint them. They're they're idols. Demonstrate that idols are nothing, that you're not afraid of their idols. This means calling abortion murder. This means calling sexual immorality sin, evil, perverse, shameful, refusing to use the damn pronouns. Bruce Jenner is an ugly dude in a dress. And don't apologize for any of it. When they come screaming at you, it hurt their feelings. It was a bad testimony. You say, no, it was a really good testimony. Let me tell you why. God created the heavens and the earth. He made us male and female. We're made in his image. And Jesus came to redeem us from all this crap. And if you lose your job, be willing to do that for the sake of Jesus. We have a number of people in our community who have lost jobs because they wouldn't use the pronouns. Joyfully, gladly. There's a number of other things too. Knock down the idols. I mean, um, taxation above ten percent above ten percent is an abomination. Who do you think you are, God? God requires us to give a tithe, ten percent. I mean, we we think it would be glorious if we could get down close to ten percent. Add up all those taxes. How much are you paying? We are being robbed by people who think they are gods. It's wicked, it's theft. 
It's blasphemous. You are not God. You may not take more than God. Or the prison system. There's absolutely no defense in scripture for prisons. It's wicked. To treat human beings like animals in cages. We've been doing it for decades now, and we wonder why it's not getting better. I don't know, put a bunch of criminals together in the same room for, you know, decades. What could go wrong? Oh, we're rehabilitating them. Oh, really? How's that rehabilitation going? How many of them have you rehabilitated? Last thing is that God has established three basic governments in the world, the family, the church, and the state. The assignment given to the church is word and sacrament. The assignment given to the family is health, welfare, and education. The assignment given to the civil magistrate is to uphold strict biblical justice, equal weights and measures, and punish criminals accordingly. Jesus is Lord means that all authority comes from Jesus personally. He is the one who gives the assignments, and if he gives you an assignment, you do not get to make up a new assignment on your way. This means that parents, pastors, and civil magistrates are not free to rewrite their job descriptions. They do not have authority over their offices. They only have authority in their offices. Authority that was given to them by Jesus. This means that the civil government has no business telling us what is healthy. Has no business telling us about healthcare decisions or how to take care of our kids or how to educate them. Jesus did not give them that authority. They have no authority to do so. They are disobeying Jesus. Pastors have no business telling people what healthcare decisions to make either. The only thing we have authority to do is tell families that it's their job. It's your authority. This needs to be fixed in our mind. These assignments, this is what it means. When you say Jesus is Lord, you mean that Jesus gives authority to the governments and the governments must do what he said. And they may not make it up as they go along. And so if they are doing things that Jesus has not assigned them to do, they are disobeying Jesus. And Christian politicians need to have this fixed in their hearts. And their constituents need to have this fixed in their hearts. You will only do those things that Jesus has assigned you to do and nothing else. And you will vote no on everything else. Last thing is just, if Jesus is Lord, then we have to work for all of this with a big smile on our face. This is sort of what we mean by the fight, laugh, feast mantra, the motto. Jesus, you remember, came eating and drinking. He came celebrating. He came feasting. And then he gave us a meal to celebrate every week when we gather, bread and wine, share this together, rejoice in my presence, give thanks in my presence. And so joy has to be at the center of all of it. We want grace to collide with the darkness. And grace is full of joy. Grace is full of laughter. Grace has a smile on his face. We will not make progress of this if if you take these things and then you sort of say, man, I hate those liberals. (laughs) Ruining our country. If you start snarling and seething and then go up and yell at them, you are not helping. We want to be jolly warriors. Glad warriors. Which is why singing the Psalms is a great practice for this. Because you have to sing, you can't really get angry when you're singing Psalms, even though the Psalms are like, break their teeth in their mouths. Break their arms, O God. Smash them to pieces. But you're singing it. But that's the, that's the ticket, is you leave vengeance to the Lord. The Lord's the one who repays. He's the one that, that judges, and you just sing it. Lord, repay them for their wicked things. Let them fall into the pits that they have dug. And what do we do? We just keep telling them, Jesus is king, you've got to stop. You must submit. And you can come along, come along. We were rebels too. We were rebels too. We were the enemies 
too. And when we were enemies, Christ died for us. Come along. Come. There's room for you at the table too. Come rejoice with us. Come. Come to worship. He's putting everything back together. He's put us back together. So come. But it's that kind of gladness, that kind of smile, that kind of rejoicing. That's got to be at the center of it all. Amen.